This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaiian Electric is committing to cut its carbon emissions by 70% come 2030. We talked to Scott Tzu, president of Hawaiian Electric Company, this morning about how it plans to do that. We're going to be making a very public commitment to reduce our emissions 70% by 2030. And when I say our emissions, it includes all of the emissions coming from our power generation, uh, as well as the emissions coming from our independent power producers. So this is the lion's share of where our electricity in Hawaii comes from. And, you know, we, we decided, you know what, let's draw a line in the sand. We have to, you know, really show this commitment publicly. And um, it puts us on track to help meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius climate change limit that everybody's been talking about uh, at, at the global level. So how do we do this? How do we cut emissions by 70%? Well, the good news is that this is uh, primarily based on the renewable energy plans and the transition that is already in motion here in Hawaii. We've had a head start since we signed the Clean Energy Agreement back in 2008. Uh, as everybody in Hawaii in the energy space knows, right, we've, we've gone through a lot of uh, technical issues and uh, designing new programs, considering the needs of different uh, types of customers, and that's really, really positioned Hawaii well to be able to make these bold commitments. Now, we still have our work cut out ahead of us. We have lots of projects under development right now. Um, and we're going to have to continue to, you know, feed the pipeline of renewable projects in order to meet this goal. You know, the one story that's been in the news recently has been the uh, coal-fired plant here on Oahu, mm-hmm. the AES uh, generator. How are you looking at that? Well, I think for one thing, it's important that we are shutting down or at least AES is going to stop using coal at the end of 22. So that is, you know, just another symbol of the commitment that Hawaii is making to to reduce carbon and um, help with uh, manage climate change. As far as the question of whether or not that plant should be converted to to run on biomass um, or some other type of a renewable fuel, um, that's going to be something that's going to be looked at heavily uh, in the course of the next several months. Um, We have to make sure that it makes sense for the energy system, that, you know, it's affordable. And of course, with respect to climate change, that you're, you know, you actually are seeing a net reduction in carbon by converting to biomass. So more to come on that. There had been discussions about, you know, natural liquefied gas and some pushback on that. But, you know, there is the concern that a Hawaiian electric can produce the energy that we need to run things. Yeah, actually, that. We, you know, there, we don't have that concern. As we're doing our resource planning, we're, we're making sure that we have enough uh, what we call energy reserve margins to serve the electric load. So as we look towards 2030, you know, one of the most important things that's on our minds is as we convert our energy system to cleaner fuels, decarbonize, and, uh, you know, our, our energy system, at the same time, we've got to make sure that it's reliable and it's resilient. So we've got a number of factors that we are chasing simultaneously, but at the same time, we still felt it was so important for us to be able to say that we are serious about reducing carbon and we're going to hit this 70% goal. On a practical matter, you know, how do you do that at the power plants, let's say at Kahi? Well, Kahi is a good example of where, you know, some of the options we'll be looking at are as, you know, is it possible or feasible 
to repurpose parts of that power plant so that we can actually put in more flexible generating technologies at reduced cost. And these generating technologies, for example, would be capable of burning biofuels, lower carbon fuels. With the focus on climate change, you know, there is also the uh, rising sea levels, warming sea temperatures. How do you deal with the long-range plans on on, let's say, moving back those power plants, because a lot of those plants are along the coast? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, right? So when we talk about taking the carbon out of our energy generation system, that is, you know, falls into the bucket of climate change mitigation, right? Trying to reduce or slow down the um, climate change from happening. Um, what you're talking about is what we call adaptation. How do we adapt our, our living, our, our energy system, our infrastructure, to account for things like sea level rise and coastal erosion. So as we are mapping out our plans for the coming years, we are looking at you know, flood-proofing critical pieces of equipment. Um, any new, brand new power plant, right, it's got to be outside of the, uh, you know, that, that threat area right along the coast. So we're taking all those things into consideration as we develop um, what we are calling our resilient strategy. So the resilient strategy is going to take into account those, those impacts of climate change, sea level rise, as well as, you know, the potential for increased storms and, and uh, severe weather. So that's for the long term. But the mm-hmm. short term, like you said, is then maybe somehow modifying these plants to make sure that, you know, you can reduce those emissions? Well, yeah, oh, yeah. As far as the emissions are concerned, I mean, um, well, our, our strategy is, the near-term strategy is to keep going as quickly as we can to bring on um, renewable energy, right? So we've got uh, a lot of projects that are in the development pipeline, um, a lot of solar projects, some uh, energy storage projects, but we're also looking always to have this broader, more diverse portfolio of where we get our energy from, right? We don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket, so to speak. So the near-term plans are diversify our energy resources with cleaner, cleaner, renewable energy, um, while at the same time start the process of looking at how we can take our existing power plants and make them cleaner burning, cleaner fuels. You've set out this ambitious goal. I don't know. Should, should customers be worried? Are they going to see a hike no, in no. their bills? No. I mean, I, if anything, I think customers should be excited because, uh, again, this is really reflective of the work that has already been put in place here in Hawaii. You know, some of the debate that's happening in Scotland at the COP26 is that countries and other organizations are putting out these very bold, ambitious goals, but yet there's no substance behind them. You know, here in Hawaii, what we're saying is, look, we've been working at this for over a decade with many, many different stakeholders and partners, and we actually have substance, real substance to the commitments that we're, we're announcing today. So to us, that's exciting, but it's meant to galvanize all of us to, to understand that, hey, we still got to work at this and, you know, do it how we do it best here in Hawaii, work on this together. And say from the investor's point of view, how are you presenting this? In much the same way that that I'm describing this to you, Catherine, our investors also want to understand that we do have a plan to achieve the goals, that that we don't want to just, you know, announce lofty aspirations without really thinking of how we're actually going to achieve it. So our investors have uh, been very uh, supportive 
of all the work that's been going on here in Hawaii in terms of transitioning our energy system to cleaner, cleaner uh, renewable energy. And I think as long as they understand that, yep, we're, we are going to be continuing to work um, to implement the plans that are already in motion as well as to expand on them, then I think they'll, they'll feel very comfortable. The other thing that our investors are looking for more and more across the industry is they want to see companies that are serious about environment, social governance practices, ESG. And I really believe that by us making this very firm commitment that it will situate us well in the investor community. Again, this is going to rely heavily on a lot of the work that's already in progress. And, you know, I mentioned the renewable energy projects Mm -hmm. that are under development. You know, we also are getting a lot of our renewable energy here in Hawaii from rooftop solar systems. And the importance of rooftop solar is going to be continue to, I mean, we're going to continue to underscore that. We're, we're projecting that by the year 2030, we'll add, you know, perhaps another 50,000 rooftop systems. You know, we have 90,000 now already, and we're, we're projecting, hey, by 2030, we'll, we'll add another 50,000. So all of that, all of these different resources will help us to achieve the 2030 goal. That was Scott Sue, president of Hawaiian Electric, talking about the company's green energy goals and its commitment to reduce its carbon emissions by 70 percent. Green growth marked its 10-year anniversary last week. That benchmark going into the United Nations climate talks had a familiar feel for CEO Celeste Connors. She's previously worked as the Director for Climate Change and Environment for the National Security Council at the White House and has served as a diplomat for almost 12 years. We caught up with Connors this morning. You know, it's just such an extraordinary time, and it was just a fabulous celebration of the network, hearing from our partners, the early founders of Hawaii Green Growth, which, you know, some people don't know the origin story, which is actually that it was launched on the margins of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting, APEC, that was hosted here by the United States in Honolulu in 2011. And that was, you know, back then we were coming out of the 2008 financial crisis. So a group of local community leaders got together and said, we want to get on a green growth pathway uh, for Hawaii, and they launched Hawaii Green Growth. But then it has a much longer history of this connection to Malama Hawaii, an extraordinary movement, and the teachings of, you know, late Hawaii State Senator Kenneth Brown and Pinky Thompson. So it was great to hear from the founders of Hawaii Green Growth. The focus really had always been on economic, social, and environmental issues, um, and just the progress that's been made, you know, in the last decade. Um, so it was partly a celebration, and it was looking ahead to the next 10 years. Um, but part of that was really looking also at the Aloha Plus Challenge, which was launched in 2014 by the network. Explain to our listeners what uh, Aloha Challenge is. Yeah, the Aloha Plus Challenge is Hawaii's statewide sustainability framework. I mean, it's our six priority areas that Hawaii's community coming together identified in 2014 and actually predates these global United Nations sustainable development goals, 17 goals that all members of the United Nations, including the United States, agreed to in 2015. 
And so that's what's so remarkable to me, Catherine. I actually um, had been at the White House during that time, during those early days when we were looking at what would replace the Millennium Development Goals in 2015. Um, and eventually the SDGs emerged from that. But for me personally to see that my home state, Hawaii, had identified uh, the Aloha Plus Challenge based on um, local values, island values, and how they're really showing the way to the rest of the community now on how you might actually achieve these goals. And it provides a dashboard to be able to let us know how we're doing. Absolutely. You know, it's not just about transparency, but it's about accountability. And it's how we're all holding ourselves collectively accountable, um, which includes private sector, government, civil society. So the dashboard, the Aloha Plus Challenge dashboard, is actually on the the state.gov site. Um, We have a brilliant dashboard manager who works with um, our community to make sure that we have the best available data. Um, And they say you measure what matters, right? So in the early years, uh, the network um, went out to the community. We convened meetings in every county to see what matters to the community. And that's where these uh, metrics and indicators emerge from. How are we tracking natural resource management? How are we tracking our doubling local food commitment and clean energy, waste, smart, sustainable communities, you know, which includes climate change. Also, green workforce and education, you know, because this isn't really about one particular sector or one particular leg of the stool. It's really about, you know, poverty, about equality, equity, education, all of these things that will help us become more sustainable. So how are you looking at what's happening globally you know, with all the news that's that's come out of Glasgow uh, this week, uh, and how are how how is Hawaii Green Growth positioned to kind of go into the next ten years? Uh, Catherine, as somebody who's been involved, you know, at the global level, previously as the director for climate change at the National Security Council, I've been to several of, of these, you know, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change climate negotiations, and it's just really important, right, that leaders are coming together and not just. Um, leaders of countries, but now we have private sector partners and we have local government leaders coming together, the governor and other governors coming together. That it's really important that we have, it's a CACO effort, right, across na- local, regional, national government and civil society. But sometimes, you know, you, you really have to wonder, how is this all going to be implemented? You know, it's so important that we first develop these shared high-level goals and then the implementation, the process of implementation is critically important. And I really think that's the role that Hawaii can play. Um, You know, we are celebrating after 10 years, the launch of the Hawaii Local 2030 Hub, right? So in 2018, as the United Nations was trying to figure out how are we going to achieve these 17 sustainable development goals within the next decade, we have to go local, right? The rubber hits the road at the local level. And that's when they designated eight local 2030 hubs around the world. And Hawaii is the only local 2030 hub or center of excellence for sustainability in North America. The other hubs are in Europe, in South America, one in Japan. But the whole idea was the process of community coming together around these uh, shared goals. And sometimes that's complicated, right? And it's looking at the trade-offs that exist in between these goals. So, you know, climate change, to my mind, is the force multiplier. It's the thing that, if not addressed, it's the challenge of our time, if not addressed, can really undermine hard-fought, you know, development gains uh, locally and globally. So when we look at climate change in that way, it's about all of the how 
all of these other goals are coming together to actually really move things forward. How do we have clean energy and food security? So that's the process point that I think Hawaii can bring to the global equation. We can be the, the model. Hawaii has over a thousand years of, of knowledge and history of systems thinking, ancient knowledge, now with you know modern science, how all of this is coming together to really position Hawaii to be that starlight for other economies and other island economies in particular to see how it can be done. You know, so this is where we've been working with some other islands from Ireland to Grenada to Palau and Guam to look to how they can uh, also implement these shared goals. They can come together as a community to establish a process, a public-private partnership process, to develop a dashboard. We have an MOU in place with ESRI, a leader in GIS, and how we can actually have other communities develop their dashboard, track and measure their progress. That really leads to specific concrete actions. And, you know, what's also exciting, Catherine, is that the businesses are very involved in this. We're convening the Sustainable Business Forum, the SBF, and these are local Hawaii business leaders that have come together around the Aloha Plus Challenge Goals with a view to helping achieve the global sustainable development goals and to critically meet their environment, social governance, or ESG commitments. And so it's, it's great to see how we have that kind of diversity of partners coming together through a public-private partnership. As I was trolling the headlines this morning to learn about uh, new technology that's going to be announced, I think, today uh, from a British company that is looking at zero carbon emission flights because they're using liquid ammonia in the airplanes, which is which could be a game changer for us down the road. Yeah, you know, we're going to need game-changing technology, absolutely, to get us to these goals to meet the Paris Agreement. And it's also transportation, right, is a huge sector that we need to look at more closely and the contributions transportation has to global emissions currently, but the opportunities to move that forward. So, yeah, absolutely, the, the innovation that we need to get there coming together. There's also commitments that we saw on methane reduction, which is a short-lived climate pollutant, which is really critically important that we actually take steps to manage that as well. So I think it's, it's great that we are looking at these large-scale commitments. What we're going to have to do is anchor this to concrete action. And so where are we going to come together? What are some specific things that we're going to do together? What are ways that we can think locally and act globally by exporting some of Hawaii's great ideas. So what are you most excited about then for the next 10 years for Hawaii Green Growth? I, I'm really excited about the progress that we're making. You know, some of the, the partnerships that we're working with, if you look at fish pond management, how there are already networks within networks that are being established to say, you know, with COVID disruption um, came real hardship, not just in Hawaii, Catherine, but other island economies, right? So through the local 2030 Islands Network, we're going to be building a larger coalition of island economies that are coming together. We're going to be launching two new sort of peer groups, communities of practice, one on community resilience, and another looking at the opportunity for increasing data and dashboards. We're partnering with the U.S. government on this, with NOAA and the Department of Energy and REL. So how we have bringing more resources into Hawaii to provide this type of support so I'm looking at expanding our network of island partners, looking to establish local goals and dashboards. We're really excited about the opportunity for the private sector partnership as well. You know, one of the things that the Sustainability Business Forum has looked at is carbon offsets and how do we provide a mechanism for tourists and visitors when they come to Hawaii that they can actually offset their emissions in Hawaii and that revenue actually stays here. So that's um, something that we're really excited about. 
and also looking at very place-based opportunities that can be scaled more broadly. You know, the work that we're doing through the Alawai Watershed Collaboration, which is a network of public-private partners that have come together looking at um, sort of a comprehensive watershed management plan that includes some really exciting projects in the watershed from Albizia management um, all the way down, opportunities to generate revenue, create efficiencies within a system, but to actually do that through a values-based approach. So these are some of the very specific things that we're excited about. I think that we're, we're going to be releasing another report next year, another um, voluntary local review that will demonstrate our progress as a network, and certainly we continue to track progress regularly on the dashboard. Well, I'll give you a, a virtual toast, so cheers for the next 10 years. <laughs> Thanks so much, Catherine. We, we're delighted, and, you know, it's just as I said, a huge effort with all of the partners. Um, it's just it's delightful uh, for me to be able to work with partners back home where I grew up um, and to see how our local actions are truly globally relevant. That was Hawaii Green Growth CEO Celeste Connors talking about Hawaii's role in the next decade as we combat our changing climate. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Healthcare Centers, providing primary care at multiple locations across Hawaii. Learn more by calling 808 691 8200. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Jane Hirschfield, author of A Book of Poetry, The Beauty, and A Book of Essays, Ten Windows. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how great poems transform the world. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Lucilla Beats Reality Check today delves into a major case decided by the Hawaii Supreme Court. Reporter Blaze Level joins us. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yes, this is a big deal. This is the gut and replace trick that we often see at the legislature each session. It's a huge deal, and the decision yesterday was a three to two decision. Uh, Chief Justice Mark Rechtenwald actually found himself in the minority in this case. But uh, those three justices who ruled in favor of two good government groups that have been challenging this practice by the legislature for years, uh, they've won. And the justices have said 
that once a build is changed beyond you know its original scope that it has to go back through these three readings process now what the legislature does uh, almost every year there's at least a few bills that happens to you know they'll take the contents of the bill they'll remove it and they'll stick in the contents from another bill or even just an entirely new concept and the court yesterday said that they've got to stop doing that because it just doesn't give the public enough time to participate. And the justices uh, on the majority side, it was Paula Nakayama, Sabrina McKenna, and Michael Wilson. Yep, uh, that's right. And they introduced this concept uh, called germaneness, and they said that once a bill is non-germane, once there's a non-germane amendment, it has to go back through that process, and this germaneness concept, they pulled it from another um, section of the Constitution in which they ruled that says that a law shall embrace one subject, and so anything outside of that subject kind of go into the bill. But as you know, looking at the legislature each session, there's tons of bills with really broad topics, things like relating to state government, relating to the state of Hawaii, relating to the Department of Public Safety in this 2018 law that they invalidated. And the state has previously argued that, you know, having those broad bill titles, it gives lawmakers the leeway to basically do anything they want under that broad subject. The example that they used was if it's relating to the Department of Public Safety, you could have a bill whose contents go from something like fire protection to sheriffs to something else as long as it's related to public safety. But, you know, again, the justices are saying that you can't do that anymore. Well, uh, I bet you Sandy Ma, uh, the executive director of Common Cause, was just over the moon with this decision. Yes, they were really excited. It's, you know, for them, it's a it's a win for public participation and for transparency. They feel that this ruling will force lawmakers to take a better uh, look at the amendments they try to make. They feel it will give the public a better way to understand what's happening in the legislature. Uh, but also in the dissent, in Chief Justice Mark Rechtenwald's dissent, you know, he says that the public already has an opportunity to weigh in. And this is something that the legislature and state have argued before, that even though these amendments are happening, it's not like the public can't find out, right? They can read the amendments on the legislature's website. There's a 48-hour notice before any bill, you know, gets adopted in its final form. And so there's an opportunity for lawmakers and the public to wait. And the Chief Justice has also said that that concept of germaneness we talked about earlier and or, uh, the original scope of a bill, that's not found anywhere in the Constitution. And really it's not. While other states point out that lawmakers can't move beyond the original scope of a bill, our Constitution doesn't you know, actually say that, even though the majority has interpreted it that way. And did we get any reaction from the lawmakers on this decision? When I called uh, Senate President Ron Koch and the Speaker, House uh, Scott Psyche, yesterday, uh, I didn't get a response. But you can bet that there's going to be, I mean, it's really going to impact how they do things. You know, it's not just... It, a lot of times when we talk about the gun and replace bills, we focus on the really bad ones. But there, there's a lot of times where they have a legitimate reason to push through emergency legislation. There's things like disasters, how they respond to that, how they push 
forward for funding with it. But the good government groups have argued that they've got other tools at their disposal. They've got blank bills that they can move through session that they can stick contents into. They could also change their rules and their speculation that that could happen, that they could move around deadlines. Maybe they extend the bill introduction deadline and give themselves, you know, an opportunity to address some issues that might crop up late in session without having to resort to this gut and replace tactic. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what changes next session. Uh, but thanks so much, Blaze. This is just a fascinating case. Interesting decision. Really is. All right, we have been hearing from Civil uh, Beat's Blaze Level. To read his story, head to civilbeat.org. <laughs> Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with new tours evoking divinity and sustaining Hawaii, exploring historical context and cultural relevance of works across the museum. Registration at honolulumuseum.org. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online, or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, celebrating 50 years with renovations to its lobby and Starbucks lounge, reflecting a blend of Hawaii's tropical colors with contemporary furnishings. AlaMoanaHotel.com As we continue to look at the greening of our future, we turn to Kohala's Hawaii Preparatory Academy. We take a little tour of sorts to understand, you know, what this means and what it looks like. It all started in 2016 with a strategic plan for HPA. Robert Bunway is the board chair. Greg McKenna is the school's resource sustainability manager. But we start first with Robert Bunway. In that strategic plan was a was a vision about embracing our unique environment and the culture of Hawaii Island and and designing educational experiences for students that would educate them to be responsible global citizens. And then part and parcel of that was a, was a passage about integrating environmental stewardship and service into our residential life and curriculum. So fast forward a little bit to 2018, 2019, and, and we decided to really take a deep dive in making a sustainability plan that was unique to Hawaii Preparatory Academy. Um, and so we had a series of ideation sessions with the stakeholders in the school and in our community. Um, we did a lot of benchmarking with other schools, and we had a team visit schools in the mainland. And we also took a, took a deep dive into the whole school sustainability framework, which was authored by the Center for Green Schools, and, and really 
encapsulated a lens from which we look at school sustainability. And then uh, finally, we paid special attention to our konohiki, or our Hawaiian cultural practitioners. And then from that, we developed the Malama Kaiulu model, which are four essential sustainability practices that we look at sustainability at HBA today. You know, and, and I was just looking at your website and was struck by, uh, you know, a phrase there, the power of our place. Yes, I think our place is so unique. You know, we're about 220 acres. We, we face kind of southwest, always sunny, except when it rains, but then it's sunny again shortly. It's windy. It's still. It's got high elevation. It's, it's such a beautiful place that it inspires us to be stewards of our land and should inspire all of our students to become those global citizens that we strive for them to be. And Greg, talk about, you know, what it's been like for the students. The students are like an integral part of this work. One of our big pedals in our Malama Kaiulu model is, is our curriculum and program. And it really is woven throughout our school program all the way from you know, what they're doing at the village campus garden, all the way up at each division with our capstones, which are these year-long inquiry-based projects that students take on and that are driven by their own passions and interests. And, you know, like Robert was saying, we, we have students that have grown up in our school and been a part of our campus for years, and now they're the ones taking on big projects like um, the Waiaka Stream Restoration looking at alternative energy sources on our campus like pump storage hydro and and really like raising awareness around these issues so that we are leaders in the conversation and um, and the students are right along with us you know and you have what some like signature programs you know that you're kind of putting out there uh just to show people this is what we're doing absolutely i i think our you know, we, we've been leading in terms of our facility design. You know, back in 2009, um, the Energy Lab was was built, and that, you know, was one of the first buildings in the state not only to be certified LEED Platinum, but to also successfully complete the Living Building Challenge. Um, but, you know, we also have our signature programs like our um, our marine science research and our sea turtle program that, you know, has been connecting students to, um, to the natural world and to issues on the islands and, and the ocean um, for years. Um, and now you look at, you know, the success of our garden program at the school. You know, our, our upper school garden was, you know, ground was broken there in about 2009. Um, and it really let us embrace kind of this place where we were and the traditional style of agriculture that's present up here on Kohala Mountain. Um, we were, you know, they flew over the site using LIDAR and were able to identify these locations of where the, the Hawaiian terrace farms had previously existed. And from that work, we then laid out the blueprint for our garden to reclaim those spaces and rebuild those terrace systems and our students are actively engaged in that work with some phenomenal, passionate employees at the school who are, who are really making the connections not only to this place, but to our natural foods and, 
you know, talking about how it connects to our community outside of campus as well. And Robert, can you talk about the goals that you've set for yourselves? The goal that we announced just a few weeks ago is a carbon net zero goal. And we want to attain that carbon net zero goal by 2030. Now, that's only nine years away or eight years away as this year winds down. But there's a number of of institutions that have declared uh, uh, 2030 as goals. Uh, the state of Hawaii has has made net zero operating emissions from government buildings a goal by 2030, and also they want their fleet to be net zero by 2030. I noticed major corporations and institutions have, have announced 2030 net zero goals, including Apple. And, you know, finally, I think the report that came out yesterday today, which was on the uh, HPR webpage about the the global carbon budget report, which so there's only 11 years left to cut emissions drastically to avoid the earth warming by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And above that is going to be a dangerous time for all of us. So, so I think that the 2030 goals comport with all of that's going on with other institutions and the, and the, the global climate emergency that we're experiencing now. We've got issues with our water resource What's the school doing to reduce its c- consumption? Absolutely. So in the same way that we've been approaching our energy use, the way that we approach water is first understanding our water use. So we are currently setting up building-level metering systems so that we can understand our patterns of use, so that we can identify leaks and really start at that level where we can improve our efficiency of water use at campus. From there, we you know we are going to start making some big improvements around our campus, following some examples like the Energy Lab, to harvest rainwater, store that rainwater, use it for systems like washing machines, flushing toilets, and then using that as the, the jumping-off point to really tackle some of our biggest water uses around irrigation for our fields. And I know here uh, in Honolulu, here on Oahu, you know they're talking about stormwater drain management. I don't know, what's the Big Island doing there? What's the, your campus doing about uh, runoff? We have a, a unique situation where our our water either flows into the ground or it heads towards the Waiaka Stream, and so we're really doing a, a concerted, or we're making a concerted effort, sorry, to really pay attention to that water flow. We, we don't, at this point, collect any of the rainwater, and so that's a first step. If we can start stop that water that's hitting all of our buildings and collect it and store it, there's less water flowing over the ground. Um, we're also looking at a stream restoration project that's going to enhance the bank of the stream and prevent the, the stream erosion when those, um, when those waterways really start flowing. And what about waste? So we have a, a really aggressive waste management plan. Um, there are sorting stations all around campus. And fortunately, we have a really great contract with business services that allows us to continue to recycle things like paper and some plastics um, that the Big Island County can no longer offer to the, to the community. And so that allows us to, to manage our waste at the back end um, but we're also working really aggressively within our dining hall. All of our food waste is either composted or fed to, um, or serves as feed for a local pig farmer. And we are reducing drastically the amount of single-use plastics that we have. 
throughout COVID, waste was a, a huge issue. You know, everyone needed to be really setting safety as a priority. And so that led to a lot of plastics being used on our campus. And fortunately, our community kind of rallied around that, and we were able to, you know, work with our dining hall service to eliminate single-use items completely from service midway through last year and continuing to refine that so that now even as we look to take students back off campus, what we're bringing our food in and how we're collecting that waste is all in reusable containers that we bring back to the school, wash, and um, use again on the next trip. And Robert, you know, when you talk about renewable energy, how much solar do you have in play right now? And are you looking at something else, you know, wind or I don't know, where are we at? Yeah, so we are energy net positive from about 7 a.m. when the sun rises till the uh, till late afternoon. And then we start getting uh, power off the grid. Um, so what we want to do is install more solar as well as a battery farm. And that'll help us become self-sufficient as a campus. And we plan to do that before the, the 2030 goal that we have set. And is there, I don't know, anything else that uh, you can share with us just about, you know, how easy or difficult it's going to be to achieve these goals? Sure. I, you know, I think there's a process we're going to start undertaking shortly. Uh, Greg and I are working on that. We're going to have to talk about you know, regulatory hurdles, talk about installation hurdles, talk about, you know, financing, and talk to the community about what we're doing. So I think there's an array of, of uh, challenges that we have in front of us to reach the carbon net zero, but certainly we are inspired to do so by not only what's going on around our planet, but inspired by our values in terms of the sustainability plan that, that uh, we've laid out. And what about just getting around, you know, transportation? <laughs> How does that work on Absolutely. your campus? Yeah, this is Greg. I think that on, on our own campus, we're able to electrify our fleet. Robert talked about some of the, the first steps, those like big initiatives that we need to look at. And electrification of our own fleet is, is essential. Um, we we run school buses. We have maintenance equipment. You know, we have shuttles. We so the first steps that we can is taking those carbon emissions off, or kind of like removing them from our contribution. And then, you know, like Robert said, we need to improve our capacity to produce our own electricity with a focus on renewables and storage, so that again we're not contributing to carbon emissions by purchasing electricity from Helco. I think another important thing that we have access to on our campus is an ability to really um, support and manage our own land in a way that can enhance these carbon sinks and keep the land healthy and promote native plant growth and planting so that we can essentially become a carbon sink through our land. The power of place. We have been hearing from HPA's Greg McKenna and Robert Bunway about the school's carbon net zero blueprint and green energy goals as we wind out the week where climate change has been the focus on the global landscape.
And we close out this Aloha Friday with news about not one, but two interesting exhibits. Arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa joins us today. Hi, Noe. Hey, hi, Catherine. You're right. It's two shows that are are terrifically linked right now on UH Manoa campus. And I'm so glad we get to take a little trip over there. First to the John Young Gallery. Have you ever been there? Yes. Catherine? Yes, I have. Oh, you it's have? Cute. You're one of the few. (laughs) It's a terrifically kept secret down by Andrew's Amphitheater. And um, we're going to start there with the Dorothea Lange War Relocation Authority assignment. Remember the famous photos of the Dust Bowl? I mean, the migrant mother with child and depression, bread lines. Dorothea Lange took those images. And she was commissioned by the federal government to take pictures of the roundup of Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor. She did that, but the photos were never shown. They were suppressed until UCLA dug them up in 1972. Now, Micah Pollock is director and chief curator for the John Young Museum and UH Manoa Art Gallery. She was kind enough to give us a walkthrough. And at the very start of the show, this is great. It's a photo of the original document that sent Japanese Americans to those prison camps and is dated May 3rd, 1942. The poster went up in places equivalent to shopping centers, supermarkets. It says, introductions, instructions to all persons of Japanese ancestry. All persons of Japanese ancestry, both alien and non-alien, will be evacuated by 12 noon Saturday, May 9th, 1942. Micah Pollock picks up here. And it says you can only bring bedding and linens, no mattress, toilet articles for each member of the family, extra clothing, and essential personal effects. No personal items, no household goods. These were members of communities who had farms in some cases, and businesses in others. This guy has a flower farm. This is another farmer. Some of the farming groups in California actually supported the internment because they knew they could buy a farmer's land at fire sale prices. And the land was never returned to the people who were evacuated. Who were forced to sell? Yeah. You see why maybe everyone in Kaimuki was burning their family histories and burning pictures of the emperor and burning letters from home. Ooh, that just gave me goosebumps. The curator there, Micah Pollock. Yeah, it was happening, right? Mm. What curator Micah Pollock is saying is that that threat to Japanese Americans that Lang recorded on the West Coast was definitely felt here in Hawaii very strongly. Um, Newspaper headlines at the time show that anti-Japanese sentiment was growing before Pearl Harbor. And after the bombing, many Japanese households did burn, bury, or they sank anything they they thought could possibly be incriminating. Uh, And that is what Ken Okiishi's grandparents did. Okay, now at this point, we head to UH Art Building Gallery. It's just so terrific we have these two shows here at once. Dorothy Lang's photos of Japanese relocation and Japanese-American Ken Okiishi's meditation on belonging or on being American. Okay, Okiishi was raised in Ames, Iowa, but with family ties here in Hawaii. The exhibition's entitled Ken Okiishi, A Model Childhood. Now, it, it, in, the installation encompasses the entire inside of the art building gallery, Part of the installation features a huge banner depicting Okiishi's father here in Honolulu in 1940. 
And he's backed by that phalanx of traditional, you know, Boys' Day dolls. A mm-hmm. lot of people had these around. And those dolls were dumped into Mamala Bay a year after Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So Ken's identity story starts with a dumping of identity in, a, in order to be American. And um, Okiishi refers to historical ruptures like the internment that affect individual lives and kind of explore... He explores this with these objects and videos and sculptures, projections and paintings that are here in the gallery now. And so we wander through and we're trying to piece Okiishi's identity together, basically. In one area, there's this video of his home in Ames, Iowa, and the entire content circa 2009. It's a family video, but it's a catalog for insurance purposes. I mean, Catherine, imagine what a Japanese-American family's home has in it in Ames, Iowa. Uh, there's a lot that uh, is familiar in a way and yet so very American. There's also a slideshow with over 300 photographs from Okiishi's trip, the road trip that he took to pick up all the boxes of his stuff from his family home. Hmm. This was stuff his mom and dad kept over the years. And those boxes of food are on display in the gallery. They've already been shown in Marseille. They've been shown in London these cardboard boxes have like an old Halloween mask in there, a diver's watch, DVDs, flashlight key ring. I mean, a lot of Happy Meal toys and stuffed animals. And you start realizing that an American childhood that's defined by this stuff is something we really have in common, <laughs> a lot in common there. So, okay, she went on this cross-country trip, right, to pick up the boxes. His mom kept uh, slides of the road trip, and they're on display there, too. He also shows slides of the American landscape on this trip. It sounds fascinating. I'm so glad that we can all check it out. It's on display now. Both John Yanyi Museum and UH Manoa Art Gallery open Sunday through Thursday, noon to 4. And here's a pro tip for you. Go on Sundays when the parking's free. Okay, there you go. All right, well, thanks so much, Noe. Thank you. Happy Aloha Friday. Oh, yes, happy Aloha Friday. That was HPR's arts and culture reporter, Noe Tanigawa. To read more of her stories, check out hawaiipublicradio.org. Night and you and blue Hawaii The night is heavenly And you are heaven to me Lovely you and blue Hawaii With all this loveliness There should be love That is it for this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, New international requirements for travel kick in on Monday. We look at how we plan to roll out the welcome mat for visitors from Japan. And a reminder, you can listen back to all of our shows on the conversation page on the HPR website. Uh, Savannah Harriman Poe, Russell Subiano, and Lillian Song work to help produce our show every week. The Backyard Quiz theme is by John DeMello. Our theme music is courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. Thank you.